We are beginning a journey of the book of Daniel today. We're going to be looking at the first two verses in the book, but we need to look at some passages that set the stage for those first two verses. Now, the first text I want you to turn to is Isaiah chapter 39. Now, Isaiah 39, uh, 5 to 6, are verses that were written about a hundred years before the events of verses 1 and 2 of the book of Daniel. Now we're reading from Isaiah 39, beginning at verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now that prediction was made by the prophet Isaiah about a hundred years before Daniel begins. I want you to go right in your Bibles over to the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk. And that's on past Daniel to Habakkuk. In chapter 1, we now turn the clock ahead about 98 years to two years before the events of Daniel. So in Habakkuk chapter 1, we're reading a prediction by the prophet Habakkuk, which is given two years before verses 1 and 2 of the book of Daniel. And here's what we read in Habakkuk 1, verse 5. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. So now this prediction is made about two years before the events of Daniel. Now I want us to go back to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, if you would please, in chapter 35, because this begins to set the stage for the events that lead to Daniel 1, 1 and 2. In Second in Chronicles chapter 35 and verse 20, here's what we read. Second Chronicles 35, verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish, on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. Now notice verse 23, the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, take me away, for I am badly wounded. Josiah was a godly king in Judah's history, in fact, the last godly king in Judah's history, and he was killed by this Egyptian king, Necho, in this battle, which brings us to Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 1. Then the people of the land took Joahatz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in place of his father in Jerusalem. Joahatz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt, that would be Necho, deposed him at Jerusalem and imposed on the land a fine and 100 talents of silver and one talent of gold. The king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Joahatz, his brother, and brought him to Egypt. Now, Joahatz was made king, but he was replaced by Necho with Eliakim, whose name he changed to Jehoiakim. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is going to begin his attack, and we're going to see it here in Second Chronicles as we continue to read. And Nebuchadnezzar had three waves of attack that came up against Jerusalem. The one we're going to look at today was his first wave of attack, but all three waves of attack show up in the reading of Second Chronicles. So if you read Second Chronicles with me, 
chapter 36, verse 5. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze and chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations which he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, and Jehoiakim, his son, became king in his place. So there's wave one. When Nebuchadnezzar goes up against Jerusalem, he captures the city, he takes some of the people, and he takes the temple articles. Now wave two of Nebuchadnezzar's attack shows up in the next verses, 9 to 18. Jehoiakim was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the valuable articles of the house of the Lord and made his kinsman Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priest and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers. He brought them all to Babylon. That's wave two. That's deportation wave number two. Now the final attack that Nebuchadnezzar leveled against Jerusalem is in the next verses 19 to 20. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Now this is the background of Daniel chapter 1, so I'd like you to go there. You have Daniel chapter 1 and you have God allowing these things to take place to set the stage for this remarkable story in Daniel. In Daniel 1, we read beginning at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. As we said, this is his first attack against Jerusalem. Verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels, now notice some, not all, some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Before we look at this text, let's bow and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God and for those who are here to partake of it today. We pray your blessing on this hour and your blessing on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The war in which we lost the most uh, casualties was World War II. 
In World War I, the United States lost 50,000 American lives, 50,585. In Vietnam, we lost 58,000 American lives, but in World War II, we lost 292,000 killed in battle against Adolf Hitler. But a battle that ultimately changed the course of World War II was not one that we were involved in. It was a battle between Germany and Russia, and it ultimately changed the course of world history. Adolf Hitler at that point had conquered Poland, Austria, and France. It was 1942. He'd made an alliance with Russia. He decided to break that alliance and move against Russia to take over the world. And this thing hit head-on at Stalingrad. And it was at that point where Germany was turned back. That would become a major key to Hitler being destroyed in 1949. It has been said that had Hitler won at Stalingrad, he would have won the world. One must ask, who determined that he would lose there? The numbers of losses were incredible. The Soviet Union lost 750,000 men. Germany lost 850,000 men. Who determined that Hitler would be stopped right there, then? which would change the course of world history. When you read Daniel, you conclude it was God that was behind the scenes in all of that. He was bringing allied nations together to fight against him, but it was God who was actually working, and this became a major turning point in Hitler's mind to the point that he went under depression to the point that ultimately he killed himself. If ever you want to see God at work in these kinds of activities in living color, it's in the book of Daniel. God is controlling national and international warfare right down to individuals that he uses to get involved in the warfare and even defeat his own people. Now to understand the setting for the book of Daniel, we must turn back the clock about 150 years before Daniel. Israel had been divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. They were divided because of sin. That started back in King David's day, but the split occurred in Solomon's day. Jeroboam, who was Solomon's son, became king of the northern ten tribes known as Israel. Rehoboam, Solomon's other son, became king of the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, known as Judah. Both groups decided not to pursue the ways of God. Both groups turned to sin, so God raised up prophets to warn them of pending judgment. Nineteen kings ruled over Judah for the next 345 years until it was finally taken captive in 586 B.C. Of those 19 kings, only eight of them were good, 11 of them were evil. And at the time of Daniel, Jehoiakim, the 17th king, was in power and he was evil and God finally said, I've had enough. So about 117 years before the events of Daniel begin, God allowed the northern division kingdom, known as Israel, to be taken captive by the Assyrians. Judah saw that happen. Judah watched that happen to her northern brother, but she still didn't learn from that. She did not repent, so God warned Judah. He raised up prophets like Isaiah, who predicted that if she didn't turn from her sin, God would allow Judah to be taken captive by the Babylonians, and still she would not repent. So just a couple of years before he actually had it happen, he raised up another prophet, Habakkuk. And Habakkuk predicted the same thing. If you don't turn from your sin, God will raise up a Chaldean people who will come against you. They'll be vicious. They'll attack you. And still there was no repentance. So in 605 B.C., God did just what he said he was going to do. He permitted Judah to be taken captive along with Daniel and his three friends. 
There's something that God's people need to realize regardless of the dispensation that we live in. And that is, just because God's judgment does not come immediately does not mean it will not come eventually and precisely just as predicted by Almighty God. No one gets away with rebellion forever. You can be certain of this. Daniel says there comes a point in time where God steps in. One may sneak around and pursue sin for a while as God's child, but God will eventually expose it. God will eventually deal with it. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's why the admonition to the believer who falls into sin is turn from it, confess it, and experience the mercy of God. Because God is not an idle spectator in this. Now, the historical events surrounding the book of Daniel come at a very tough time in Israel's history. She is experiencing severe punishment from the hand of God. Israel had been. Now, Judah is going to experience the same thing. In fact, we could say the entire promised land was under siege. God predicted this would happen. He said that because of sin, if you don't repent, I'm going to raise up nations who are going to come against you. He predicted that he would allow that to happen to Israel, and he did. And now the same thing was happening to Judah. And again, the important principle to glean from this background is that God expects his people to do that which avoids judgment. When you watch the rebellion of others brought under judgment, God expects his people to make decisions that will avoid judgment. Judah had every opportunity to learn from watching what happened to Israel, but she didn't learn. So God said, fine, I'll let the same negative things happen to you that happened to her. I have a pastor friend who was involved in going to Russia shortly after that country got opened up to the gospel. He and some members of his church went over there with the goal of planning a church. He said that when he went to Russia, it was depressing. The whole scene over there was depressing. He said people would line up for blocks just to get some bread. Now he said, I thought to myself, here's a world that's tried to take God out of its belief system. It, for many years, tried to become an atheistic and was an atheistic country that said there is no God and taught the people that. He said, when you see the results of what happens to a country that says there is no God, and then you go there and see those poor people who are trying to find a loaf of bread, he said, it certainly should say to us that we don't want to get on a path as a nation that says there is no God because you don't end up happily ever after if you do that. Every time you and I visit a cemetery... Every time you and I go to a funeral, we ought to wake up and say, you know, this one day is going to happen to you. Wise people realize this. Wise people make adjustments in life in realizing that. Judah didn't. The book of Daniel opens with the words, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now, to understand those words, we would have to look at the background in 2 Chronicles 35 and 2 Kings 23. For the most part, we looked at the background in our scripture reading today. These opening words prove that God is sovereign over all political power, including power that is corrupt. God allowed Jehoiakim to come into power. He would use him to accomplish his purposes. Now, from man's perspective, when you look at this, you can't figure out what's going on. Why would God allow Jehoiakim to come into power? He wasn't even entitled to the throne, but God had his own special agenda. Jehoiakim was the son of Josiah. Josiah was a very godly, righteous king in Judah's history. In fact, it was Josiah who actually put Israel back on a path of true worship. God had hoped that under Josiah's leadership, Israel would come back to him. 
Josiah was a breath of fresh air in the kings of Judah. He was a godly breath of fresh air. Harry Baltimore said Josiah undertook the work of reformation, but he was not able to stop the vile stream of unrighteousness. And so because he was a righteous king, he was killed. He was killed by Necho, who was the pharaoh king of Egypt. And in the aftermath of Josiah's death, his other son, Jehoahatz, was appointed king, but he lasted only about a quarter of a year because Necho came in, removed Jehoahatz from being king, replaced him with his brother Eliakim, whose name he changed to Jehoiakim. That's the Jehoiakim we meet in Daniel 1.1. Now one would naturally think that since Jehoahatz and Jehoiakim were the sons of a very godly father, they are the boys of Josiah, who is a righteous king, who is a powerful man of God. You would think that's the way those two boys would turn out. You would think that both Jehoahatz and Jehoiakim would be godly people who would want to serve the Lord like their dad. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Both boys turned out to be evil. They were rotten apples who grew out of a beautiful fruit-producing tree. They had the privilege of living through a great, rare, godly revival. They saw their father put Judah back on a course of blessing, but it didn't faze them. Both Jehoahatz and Jehoiakim were evil kings. In fact, one writer said they excelled in wickedness. See, you can't always blame the parents for how godless or rotten the children are. Here's a perfect case in point. Just because somebody's raised in a godly home does not mean they're always going to turn out to promote what is godly. Alice Cooper, who was satanic on stage as a rock and roll artist, was raised by a pastor who loved the Lord. That was his father. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 1500s, had three boys and three girls born to him. This was a man who revived the world to spiritual things. He had a son that was godless. You can't blame Martin Luther or his wife Katie because they taught those children what was right. And you can't blame Josiah for the way his boys turned out. But as a result of their evil, God said, I'm going to remove Judah from my sight. I'm going to cast off Jerusalem. I'm going to cast off the temple. In fact, not one time in the book of Daniel does God call Israel his people, nor does he use the covenantal name Jehovah, capital L, capital O-R-D, for his people. Israel was totally corrupt. This was a terrible corruption that prompted God to permit Nebuchadnezzar, a heathen, Babylonian king, to take over Jerusalem and besiege it. It was this evil that leads us to Daniel 1, 1 1-2. God is never an idle spectator when it comes to his people's evil. And what you had here, ladies and gentlemen, were milk-toast evil leaders who would not stand for truth and righteousness. They would not stand for the word of God, and they led God's people right straight into judgment. God remained silent for a long time. He was not an idle spectator. He was keeping a record. And it was now time for judgment. And when the book of Daniel opens, they've got it. And there is a principle to see. And it is this, when evil is not eliminated by God's leaders, God will eventually allow his people to be punished and taken captive by godless people, godless powers, and godless things. God is sovereignly allowing every bit of this to happen to his own people because they would not turn from their evil ways. Frankly, I believe there are milquetoast leaders and preachers today who ought to be put out of business. 
because they're leading their flocks in ways that are not true and pure. They're leading them in ways perhaps of political correctness, but it's a political correctness that features loose morality. They're sanctioning things in their churches which they claim are worship, which really is nothing more than making secular that which is sacred. I was recently asked, about matters pertaining to a particular church and I was asked my opinion as to what I would do to get it back on track. I said I'd do two things immediately. I'd take the internet right out of the church. That's number one. And number two, I'd throw the drum sets and electric guitars in the garbage. I said that's number two. I said because this is making mockery of a deep true worship of God. And look at the effect it has on people. It's all fluffy stuff. They're being led to a shallow spirituality, not a deep spirituality. And you have milquetoast leaders leading them there, just like in the days of Daniel. Now, a key theme that shows up time and time again in the Old Testament is that if Israel were not faithful, if Israel did not repent of her sin, God would allow her to be delivered into the hands of godless enemies and carried away. He predicted that time and time again. This wasn't new information to Israel. Moses predicted that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Jeremiah predicted that many times in the book of Jeremiah. Micah predicted the same thing. There are just a few of the prophets who said, Israel, if you don't turn from your sin, God's going to let you be taken captive. God's word needed to be taken seriously and literally because God will do what he promises, both the positive and negative. So about one year before the events of Daniel 1, 1 1-2, the prophet Jeremiah made a remarkable prediction, and here it is. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, I shall also punish him and his descendants and his servants for their iniquity, and I shall bring on them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah all the calamity that I've declared to them, but they did not listen. Jeremiah marched right into Jehoiakim a year before the events of Daniel 1, 1 2, and he told him that. Jeremiah wrote the inspired prophecy and still Jehoiakim did not repent. In fact, when this was read to him, he cut the scriptures up with a knife and burned them in the fire. Jeremiah 36 tells us. So one year later, what God is predicting was literally coming true. Now this is something, ladies and gentlemen, that we need to learn about God. God's judgment for not dealing with evil typically does not come instantly, but it always comes eventually. I just yesterday completed reading an interesting book. It's called Eye to Eye. It's written by Bill Koenig. He traces negative things that happen to the United States when we do something against Israel. It's an interesting book. He documents over 29 events that hit the United States negatively when we spoke out against Israel. He said that God gives ample opportunity, but when the United States turns against Israel, there's always negative repercussions. I disagree with one point. I don't typically see the judgment of God as being an immediate, instant, cause-effect action. That's not how God typically works. What God does do is he gives a warning. He says, I'm warning you. You turn from this, and you'll get my blessing. And then after he allows some time to go by, typically if the warning is not heeded, then if no amendment is made, he brings about the destruction. And that is exactly what he's doing here. As Dr. A.T. Robertson said, judgment may be slow, but it's always sure. Just because one scoffs at God's predictions doesn't mean they will not be literally fulfilled because God will always have the last word. God will always punish those who try to cut up or disregard his word. That is the story of Daniel. Now from verses 1 and 2, there are three facts I want you to see. Number one, we learn when these events occurred. 
in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. The book of Daniel opens with the events occurring in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when it happens. He is the 17th king of Judah. I've listed all the kings of Judah for you in your notes. The only one I've left out is Athaliah, who was the mother of Ahaziah because I didn't really equate her as a king, although she reigned. If you view her as a king, he'd be the 18th king. I view him as the 17th king. Now, he was a vicious, godless, irreligious man who promoted abominable idolatry. As we said, he so hated God's word that when the word of God was read to him, when it pierced his heart, he cut up the scriptures and burned them. And this is an important thing to see about this man. This is an important thing for anybody to see. Put yourself on a path of judgment. All you have to do is start butchering the Bible. Don't take it literally. Just cut it to shreds. Pick out bits and pieces of scripture that you want to believe and then just disregard the other and you're right on a path of judgment. Just recently, on a major news program, it featured a discussion about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whether or not they thought that it was a literal resurrection. And when the Bible was brought into play, some were referring to it almost like it was a book of fairy tales. I just recently read of a president of a seminary who told Congress the Bible is not inspired by God. I had a Jewish believer who called me this week who said there is a theology that's called replacement theology that is going around through churches that are saying that God's word is not literal about Israel, it's just metaphorical language. Butchering the Bible. And whenever someone begins to butcher the word of God, you can be certain they're on a path of judgment, just like Jehoiakim. Now, he was appointed to be king in 609 B.C. by a godless Egyptian pharaoh. He didn't even have the right to the office. It was Necho who went in there and appointed him to be king. And this was the first of the three major deportations. But there are a couple of observations I want to make about this appointment of Jehoiakim. First of all, just because he is in power does not mean that he had a legitimate right to the power. The whole political system here was corrupt. But even in that, God was still sovereign. I know of a case in which there was someone promoted to a high level of management because he knew the CEO of the company, not because he was qualified, not because he knew the job, and not because he could relate well to people, simply because he knew the CEO of the company. He couldn't actually do the job well, and it caused all kinds of problems. He was in power. He had been given power. He didn't know how to use power. But the whole thing was wrong. The whole way he got the power was wrong. But yet, God was still sovereign even in that. The second observation is, just because evil is not instantly punished doesn't mean it will not be eventually punished. Jehoiakim got away with evil for three years. He must have been on a real ego high when Necho appointed him to be king. He must have thought, man, this is great. But things came crashing down on him. So we certainly learn that just because one's in power doesn't automatically mean they have a right to it. Now that brings us to the second fact. We learn who God used to punish Israel. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now the man that God used to bring his punishment to Israel was Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who would dominate Israel for 43 years. He was a brilliant military strategist, builder, and politician, but don't ever forget this point. Nebuchadnezzar got his position because he was an instrument that God was using to punish his people. That's the only reason he's raised up to this power. That's why he got his position. 
Nebuchadnezzar's success as a person, as a leader, even as a dictator, was due to the sovereign hand of God. Several times in Scripture, when you read a phrase that pertains to Nebuchadnezzar, he's referred to as the servant of the Lord. This does not mean that Nebuchadnezzar wished to willingly serve the Lord in a way that was faithful to God and his word. When this is referred to pertaining to Nebuchadnezzar, it means that God used him for his purposes. God can make someone rise to power. He can make someone succeed until he's accomplished his purposes. And then God can and will pull the plug on his very existence. And I'm convinced that is exactly what he did with Stalin of Russia. He raised Stalin up. Stalin was a ruthless dictator. Read the history of the evil that he did to his own people in Russia. He was ruthless. And yet God used Stalin to turn against Hitler, which turned Hitler away and ultimately caused Hitler to commit suicide along with the allies that got involved in World War II. God raised Stalin up for that purpose, to stand against Adolf Hitler, I'm convinced. And so Hitler kills himself in 1945, and in 1953, Stalin has a brain hemorrhage and drops dead. Now, who determines that? When you're reading the history of both these guys, Hitler and Stalin, it's reading a morbid history of crazed power. Who's behind the scenes? I'll raise this dictator up, let him live here, he'll drop dead. Here's one, he's going to kill himself. You see, you have the sovereign hand of God at work here. God can work, and then he pulls the plug when he wants to. Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, the text says, and he besieged it. The Hebrew word besiege is one that means he bound the city, he secured it, he confined it with his military. God allowed this foreign Gentile power to take over his most sacred spot on earth, the city of Jerusalem. He allowed them to take over his people, Judah, and he allowed them to conquer his temple. And God made no apologies for this. He's sanctioning fully this overthrow. And the way that he actually did it, to me, is mind-boggling. Now, the story happens about 605 B.C., Early in the year of 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar is leading his Babylonian army to conquer the Mediterranean world, and he is going up against the Egyptians. Jerusalem wasn't even in the picture of this. He's going up against the Egyptians. And there was a world-changing battle fought at Carchemish on the Euphrates. We read about that this morning. Nebuchadnezzar, by sovereign decree of God, put Egypt on the run. Egypt starts running to the south, going back to northern Africa. When she starts retreating to the south, Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army start chasing her, and they end up right in Jerusalem. Now, do you think that's coincidental? He's chasing the Egyptians down through the promised land and he ends up right at Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar became the leader of Jerusalem, said, let's take this city, which he did. So here's what God did. He used two other national powers to bring Nebuchadnezzar to the very city that he wanted him to conquer. Now from an onlooker's perspective, these historical events may seem to be insignificant. But that war between the Egyptians and the Babylonians was critical because that war was all about bringing punishment to Israel, bringing Nebuchadnezzar right down to the city of Jerusalem, right into Jerusalem's temple. God was directing all of the warfare. God was the one controlling the world, including the war that was in the world. Kind of like that Moses scenario. He's been raised an Egyptian and he happens to take a walk and he sees an Egyptian beating up a Jew and he gets in the fight. And then he goes on the run because God's sovereign hand was in that. He was going to use Moses in a great way. 
David Livingstone was found dead kneeling in prayer beside his bed in Africa on the morning of May 1, 1873. David Livingstone had been a missionary to Africa the likes of which she had never seen before. Not only was he a missionary, but he was an explorer, he was a hunter, and he was a doctor. When word spread across Africa that the missionary explorer of more than 30 years had died, it is said that thousands and thousands of Africans traveled across the continent just to pay their respects to Dr. Livingstone. Have you ever read the story of how Livingstone actually got into Africa? When he was 10 years old, he went to work 12 hours a day so he could go through medical school. His goal, his sights were fixed on China. In fact, for over 20 years, he purposed to study to become a doctor so he could go to China as a missionary. And for over 20 years, China was in his blood. But just as he was getting to the point where he could go, the opium wars broke out in China and the door was shut to him. So in 1840, at age 27, he ends up going to Africa. Now, who do you think controlled that? Who was involved in that background? Almighty God. You may find yourself right now in the middle of a mess. And you may not understand what's going on in your world. You may be surrounded by power and chaos and you can't figure out what in the world is going on here. You stay faithful to God because you can know God is sovereignly at work in your world. Now, when God's people fall into evil and refuse to repent, don't assume God's an idle spectator because he is involved and he's directing events. Which brings us to the third fact. We learn what Nebuchadnezzar did, verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now I want you to notice the noun used for God is Lord, capital L, small case O-R-D. In the English Bible, that's Adonai. And that particular noun for Lord, Adonai, is one that refers to God who's the supreme ruler, supreme master. So just by virtue of the fact that we read the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, God's taking full responsibility for all of this. He's taking full responsibility for Nebuchadnezzar's success. He let his people be conquered by this Babylonian heathen. This would, first of all, punish the people. Then it would purify the people, get them ready to repent. And ultimately, it would give the Sabbath rest to the land that Israel had rebelled and never given to the land. Now, there are two main actions that Nebuchadnezzar took against Israel that show up in verse 2. Number one, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. That's what he says in verse 2. Chronicles tells us that Nebuchadnezzar bound Jehoiakim with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. And again, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. That's what Daniel said. As one theologian observed, Jehoiakim became Nebuchadnezzar's puppet king by sovereign decree of God. Boy, Jehoiakim wouldn't have liked this. Kings of Judah were proud. They liked to think of themselves as having total power, especially a guy like Jehoiakim. It must have been a shock when God demonstrated that he was in sovereign control and he ordained that he would be taken away in chains. It's a wonderful blessing of God when you have a righteous king reigning, but when leaders are unrighteous, God is keeping records of that, and one day he'll bring those leaders and people who follow them to humiliation and shame. God is in the one who's in control. He's the one calling the shots. 
The second action is he took the temple articles. Verse 2 tells us, And he took some of the vessels of the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar. Many of these temple articles were specially made back in the days of Solomon. These were sacred things that Solomon had constructed for temple worship. These were things that were dedicated to the Lord. That's what disobedience always does. It makes a mess out of sacred things. And I want you to notice where Nebuchadnezzar took these prisoners and temple articles to the land of Shinar. That's Babylonia, modern-day Iraq. This specific geographical part of the world has had a history of making mockery of the true things of God. This part of the world is known for making a mockery of sacred things true to the word of God. And that is why Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Revelation 17 and 18 predicts that one day God is going to level that part of the world never to be inhabited again. He's going to level this part of the world for the mockery they've made out of his items and his sacred things. And I want you to carefully notice the temple is not called House of Jehovah. It's called the House of God. Israel's special name for the temple is Jehovah's House, House of Jehovah, capital L, capital O, capital R-D in the English Bibles. It's not uncommon to refer to the temple of God as the house of God, but most Jewish prophets called this the house of Jehovah. Isaiah referred to it as Jehovah's house. So did Jeremiah. Ezekiel often referred to the temple as Jehovah's house. So does Hosea call it Jehovah's house. Joel calls it Jehovah's house. Micah calls it Jehovah's house. Haggai calls it Jehovah's house. And Zechariah does. But Daniel never calls the temple Jehovah's house. Why? Because Israel had deteriorated and progressed in evil. This place that was once sacred, this place where once Jehovah was worshipped, which once contained the glory of God, was now in the hands of a foreign king who worshipped a false god. And just because something was once very sacred does not mean it will stay that way forever. Frankly, ladies and gentlemen, I'm appalled by some of the things that I'm seeing that are taking place in churches. Worship services are becoming more like nightclub acts. And the glory of God is departed. I've personally seen and visited churches out east that were once the great churches of the revivals of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield and John Wesley. They're dead as a doorpost. The lampstand has been removed. The glory of God is departed. And I've known of believers like that. That you looked at them and said, what happened to you? At one time you had a love for the Lord Jesus Christ and you've had a love for Scripture. They stood for righteousness. They stood for truth. But no more. The glory of God is departed just like it did from the temple of Jerusalem. And again, Chronicles tells us that Nebuchadnezzar actually took these temple articles, took them to Babylon, and put them in his own heathen temple. The location of that heathen temple, by the way, is about 50 miles south of Baghdad, Iraq. These were the sacred vessels of God which had been collected and made during David and Solomon's time. And now, instead of these being used in God's temple in Jerusalem, they're in a heathen temple in Babylon. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, would use these sacred vessels as his final drinking orgy. Nebuchadnezzar put these items in the temple of Marduk because he wanted to thank his heathen deity for giving him victory, and he wanted to show the Babylonians that the Babylonian god was stronger than the god of Israel. What Nebuchadnezzar did not know, what he possibly could not have known, was that it was the god of Israel who was allowing him to do this. 
It was the God of Israel who had ordained and permitted him to accomplish this. Godless heathen powers are still powers controlled by God and still subject to the sovereignty of God. It doesn't matter if they're corrupt, idolatrous, or immoral. Any political leader from George Washington to George Bush has been sovereignly put there by Almighty God. We may not agree with their political agenda, but I can tell you this, God is at work through all leadership. And what a tragedy here because you have sacred things that were supposed to be used for worshiping God, now used for the worship of idols. But as Dr. Warren Wiersbe said, what looks to be a victory for idols is actually a victory for God. And the truth is, later on, as you'll see as we go through this book, God will display his sovereignty in a great way in the aftermath of all of this. Now, I don't know what's going on in your own personal life right now. I don't need to know that. I don't know what's going on in your personal world. You may be in a situation right now where things are great and the people that surround you are good people and they honor the Lord and they're honoring you. Praise God for that if that's going on in your world. Or you may be in a situation right now that's absolutely bizarre. Things are going on and caving in on you and collapsing and you don't get it. Remember this, as A.T. Pearson said, history is his story. God's in control of it, all of it, every bit of it, the good and the bad. God controls it all. Now, if you're here today and you're presently pursuing a life that's corrupt and immoral, you need to understand this. God is not an idle spectator in your world. The truth of the matter, the truth of Daniel, the truth of the New Testament is God gives gracious times for people to repent. If you will repent, you will be the recipient of the blessings of God. But if you refuse to repent, know this, God is not just idly sitting by watching you thinking you're cute. He will intervene. There will come a time when he'll say, I've had enough. He did it with Israel, he did it with Judah, and he will do it with you. So if you're a believer and you know the Lord and you're pursuing a course of life that is not consistent with the word of God, then you get out of that course. Get off that path. You confess that sin and turn from it and your judgment, which you would have received, will become blessings that you will receive. May we pray. Is your life one that reflects the glory of God? That's the question. If you are here today and you trust in anything other than Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, your life cannot possibly reflect the glory of God because the glory starts with him. And you need him in your life. If you've never trusted the Lord right now where you sit, you just pray something like this. God, I know I'm a sinner. I admit it. I thank you that Jesus died for me and right now I place all of my faith in him to save me. Our Father, we thank you so much for this remarkable book of Daniel. It's our desire to properly understand it and apply it. And for any proper understanding and application that has occurred this hour, we thank you because that's you doing it. In Jesus' name, amen.